Stay informed and up to date. It's the Daily Maverick Show, Tuesdays, 1 to 2 p.m. on cliffcentral.com. Good afternoon. You're listening to the Daily Maverick Show. It's a very lonely studio in here today. It's just myself and Duncan. Uh, our producer, but we do have some guests coming in later, and we're going to be talking about the some torture um, torture aspects of the Glebelands Hostel in KwaZulu Natal. Then we're going to be talking youth politics. Uh, but first of all, we've got Daily Maverick journalist Ranjini Musami on the line. Ranjini, how are you doing? Hello, Greg. I'm doing well. I'm in rural KwaZulu Natal. It's freezing cold here, uh, but I'm good otherwise. I'm hoping you're not near the Glebelands Hostel. No, no, I'm actually quite far from it. That's um, that's in the, in Durban. I'm in um, like four hours away. Let's jump straight into it, Ranch. So it seems at the moment, as soon as the president has been instructed and he's got his bill and invoice from Kandler and the the due date is coming up, that all his friends have abandoned him. <laughs> yeah, it does seem so. I mean, there, there was, um, you know, a lot of people were gung ho about this issue. Uh, when I mean, it was first under discussion, I and mean, when uh, opposition political parties were making demands that the president pay back the money, there were quite a, a few business people and people in the ANC who had some swagger then and said, "Oh, it would be no problem," um, uh, you know, that they would uh, uh, have um, uh, no qualms about uh, donating money so that the president settles his debt. Um, but I think it's possible that they never thought that it would come. The day would come that the president would actually have to pay in money. I think they thought that there was sufficient political cover um, and that he was, you know, strong enough to be able to fend off um, uh, the debt. Uh, so uh, it, it seems that now a, lo- a lot of people are backpedaling or suddenly quite mum about the issue. Um, from what I understand, it's only the ANC in Pumalanga who's saying that they will contribute if he asks them. But there was um, a very definite statement uh, from the presidency last week saying the president has not made any requests for funds and that um, people should be wary about of hoax uh, or, or hoax accounts, um, you know, mm, and being there asked is a to scam to be had. Him. Yes. Yep. What are the actual details around the donations that can be made? Because the, the Constitutional Court said that he must personally pay back this money. Can he actually accept donations? How does it work? Yeah, it seems to be a little bit of a gray area, uh, even the word personally. I think when they say personally, they mean that it shouldn't be the state or any organization that pays on his behalf, that it, the, the, that it should be him as Jacob Zuma, not as President Jacob Zuma, that makes the payment. But it doesn't, uh, the, uh, the legal opinion appears to be saying that it doesn't prohibit anybody from donating money to him that he can personally make uh the payment, but if that is done in terms of um, South African tax law, you would then have to pay a donations tax um, and also declare that money that he received um, to Parliament. So, um, yeah, he he can receive donations, but it just needs to be done transparently, and he will obviously be then be liable for tax on on the amount he received. It almost seems bizarre to be in this situation where we've had basically a decade where where President uh, Zuma or, or Jacob Zuma has been the real dominant man in, in the country's politics. And, and to think of him on the back foot without much support is is sort of hard to hard to fathom, at least for me, you know, we've been so swept up in in Zuma's dominance. Is this is this a sign of his sort of going into his twilight years and, and waning political influence? Well, it was only natural that, um, you know, that uh, Jacob Zuma's uh, ability to ride the crest of the wave would have to come to an end at some stage. Um, and you must know that just over a decade ago, um, when he got fired in uh, 2005, um, he then already had a substantial amount of, um, of debt. Um, in fact, he's, he got fired and uh, the co- corruption case that was initially investigated against him was because of um, his inability to manage his finances, and that is why his uh, financial advisor at the time, uh, Shabir Sheikh, then um, uh, helped him uh, rec- you know, uh, receive funds and, um, and contributed to his financial upkeep, um, you know, things, things from <clears throat> paying his children's school fees um, to, um, to his clothing bills, 
um, and even these car washes, um, you know, were foot, uh, bull-footed by, by other people. And, you know, it is quite well known through the Sheikh case that he, uh, that he was not the only donor, that there were other donors as well. Um, so, uh, you know, that this has been a problem for, for Jacob Zuma, and he hasn't um, had any qualms about receiving funding from other people. And that, I think, is, is the genesis of his, uh, of his problems. But you saw at that time when he after he got fired, um, and uh, then um, the the corruption charges were uh, initially um, he was initially charged for corruption at least that um, uh, he uh, uh, you know people were willing to donate um, uh, funds to him and you know he had a lot of friends at that time he had a lot of people who were willing to align themselves with him um, and political organizations also came out in his defense you saw. Um, Kosatu, the Youth League, the South African Communist Party, all of them um, you know, uh, were able to contribute. Um, and he, he had a different image at that time. You know, he was very much a victim. Uh, people saw him as a victim of the state. And um, also he was the coming man at that time. It was clear that he, um, did, um, he did have a substantial amount of political support. And as, as it turned out, that by 2006, after he was acquitted of the rape charge, um, then he, he he was clearly on the path to the presidency, um, and and after he was elected president in 2007, then you saw that he then had a lot of support. A lot of business people wanted to align themselves with him, um, and um, you know the ANC. Um, you must remember that some some parts of the ANC, some fractions of the ANC, um, uh, kind of pushed him away and distanced themselves from him. Uh, when he was fired, but you saw all of them kind of clamoring to get back close to him. So, you know, on the, on, he rode the crest of that wave right to the presidency of the ANC and then the presidency of the country in 2009. And he has uh, enjoyed a lot of political support um, throughout that time and even uh, throughout his presidency, even though uh, his presidency has been scandal-plagued and there um, have been plenty of controversies, but he's ha- had a lot of uh, support. But I suppose that, that you know that that did have to come to an end, and you see that happening now, where uh, people are wary, uh, especially about investing their money um, in bailing him out, because you clearly they can't get any returns on that, um, politically or otherwise. Uh, because he is um, about to head into his retirement. Uh, 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 There will, in all probability, be a new um, leader of the ANC elected in December 2017. He will still stay on as president and and, uh, will only leave office in terms of the Constitution in um, mid-2019. But between 2017 and 2019, you will see that his powers and his popularity will start to wane. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to the Daily Maverick Show on Cliff Central. You can tweet us at DMShowZA or call at 0861-555-189. Ranjini, changing tack a little bit. Everybody, I think, I think you're quite well known for your, for your political writing and commentary, but I don't think many people know, um, you as a protest leader. And last week you were on the streets at the SABC, marching to the Constitutional Hill, you know, leading the, leading journalists in song. It's something something new for you. Well, something people don't know about you, uh, Greg, is that you have the power of exaggeration. I don't think you are quite a leader of the pack or uh, leading anyone in song. But yes, I was there, along with um, many dozens of other journalists uh, who felt strongly on the issue of uh, censorship at the NC um, and uh, the growing uh, uh, infestation, I think, of, of Shlaudi rule at the SABC. Mm. Um, and I think that one issue that is particularly concerning is the suspension of journalists. I think um, it, it seems also, to, that issue seems to have brought this, this issue to a real tipping point where, because people have been criticizing Claudia Monson for years and all of a sudden yeah, it's sort know, of think, overwhelming. That's, I think that's the issue is that, you know, people just see him as a bit of a clownish character, um, you know, gets like, bishops to pray over him and um, get the SABC choir to sing about him. So, you know, he, he has uh, the propensity to kind of cause a circus around him. Uh, but I think that now there is a kind of um, 
uh, malice, or, uh, you know, uh, in, in, in what he's doing. And uh, I think that it's particularly the, concern, the, the treatment of journalists and the censoring of news that has taken this issue into another dimension. Um, and if you look at the issue of the, the journalists who have been suspended, um, you know they have not—they're um, not guilty of, uh, of of real misconduct. All they do is what journalists do, what you and I do all the time, mm-hmm. is question um, how we report things and why we're reporting things in a certain way. Um, and all of us, uh, you know, strive to tell the story in the best way we can with the available facts. Um, and it seems that they are being impeded from from uh, being able to do so. And that is what they were raising as concerns, and for for that, and only that, um, they are facing suspension. Um, what? But I think uh, what is particularly concerning for me is that I think the count now is seven journalists mm-hmm. uh, who have been um, suspended in total. But the SABC is a huge organization, as you know, um, Greg. It's um, 19 radio stations and four television stations. Um, so they have giant newsrooms, um, and there's people, all sorts of people working behind the scenes. Seven out of that lot is not a lot of people. It is concerning why not more people are speaking out on this issue. Um, and, uh, you know, when you read um, some of the reports from this weekend, it seems that they, you know, that people are choosing to respond to financial incentives to keep quiet um, and to go with the flow rather than to, um, uh, you know, act according to their journalistic ethics. And I think that's the reason why it um, fell upon the rest of us in the industry to make a statement, to go out there, um, to act in solidarity with the journalists who have been suspended, and to make a strong point that um, this is not an ideal situation, particularly for the public broadcaster, and uh, that it has... um, quite a serious effect on public perception and and opinion. And that can be extremely dangerous during an election period. Mm. It seems... We we know that uh, Claudia Motsuaneng, the COO, has has seems like the full support of Communications Minister Faith Montombi. It's alleged that he, he also has uh, the support of the president. But... Do you think now there is there's reason for the ANC and more ANC leaders to perhaps take a different stance on this issue? It would seem that the uh, that the ANC has been flip flopping on this issue because on Friday uh, when we were out on the march, it was quite jarring to see the tweets from the ANC national spokesperson Dizzy Kodwa basically demonising what we were doing. Um, accusing us of having some nefarious agenda um, and basically praising the, the the path or the route that Shlaudi Matsuneng has chosen for uh, the SABC, particularly the editorial style. But over the weekend, he seemed to have backtracked on that and they're now calling for the minister to investigate that. Um, so it's difficult to say where exactly the ANC is saying. I believe that there is going to be a media briefing by... Jackson Mtembul, who is a former national spokesperson and was the head of the, com- uh, the communications committee in ANC. Um, so it will be interesting you know, to, uh, to hear what he has to say and whether they clarify their stance. Um, but, uh, you know, it's, it's also quite amusing for me that the ANC has taken this position, and I think you would have seen the rather bizarre statement from the ANC usually yesterday as well, mm. um, calling on people to back off from Slaudi. Um so they're clearly in support of um, of Shilaudi and his and his um, his uh, reign of terror at the SABC. Then you've got the SACP, uh, the Alliance Party that's completely opposed to it, um, and then Kosatu who says that they don't want to have anything to do with it. So they fence fitting. So when you talk about an alliance, um, you know the one thing you would expect in an alliance is people have similar perspectives, but here it seems that they can be as they are as different as can be. It's rather strange. Ranjini, thank you very much for joining us today and enjoy your time away. Um, my pleasure. Take care. Thank you. Uh, if you just tuned in, you're listening to the Daily Maverick Show on Cliff Central. Uh, you can tweet us at, at DMShowZA. Now, going over to a different part of KwaZulu-Natal now, um, 
We're going to speak to Vanessa Berger, who is an independent community activist for human rights and social justice. And she recently wrote an article for the Amo Bungane Investigative Journalism Group on torture at the Glebelands Hostel. Um, you've probably heard about this hostel in the news. There's political assassinations and killings have been rife over the last few years. I think in her article she said that 64 people have been killed in the area. And she documents 14 different reports, I think went to the uh, Independent Police uh, Investigative Directorate, IPID. Um, which all talk about harrowing examples of torture. Vanessa, are you with us? Hello, Vanessa. Hi, can you hear me? Yes, we can hear you. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Now, I think a lot of pe- a lot of people here just when when someone gets killed at the hostel, you know, pops up into the news out here in Joburg or across the country, but rarely do we actually understand much of what's going on there. And can you briefly outline what's behind all this violence? Well, it's basically the same as what's going on in the rest of South Africa, where we're seeing communities are burning all over the place, um, except this has been happening since about 2009. Um, basically, the community and the surrounding informal settlements don't want the ward councillor, and a vote of no confidence was passed in the branch executive committee uh, several years ago, and the councillor was asked to step down, but it didn't happen, and these local political leaders have sort of um, disregarded very valid community complaints about service delivery, accountability, um, accusations of um, sort of the orchestration of of ethnic violence uh, between different um, sort of tribal factions. by the political structures, the local political structures, and um, basically that is that is what has led to to the violence. It's the same as what is going on in the rest of South Africa. There's mm. no different, really. People just want a decent life. They want to be able to work. They want safe accommodation, and they're tired of corruption. They're tired of nepotism, and they basically want people in who, you know, leaders who who represent their interests instead of having leaders. Uh, sort of forced on them. So it's the same. It's the same. That's basically what it boils down to. Now, as as these contestations and and lack of accountability stem into into political assassinations, how do the police and how does torture come into it? Where does where does their role begin? Well, it's not just limited to Glebelands. I mean, torture was used extensively by the apartheid government, mm. and the problem is those individuals within the force have never really been removed. That element of violence, that element of, of um, you know, to create fear amongst particularly poor communities. And even if you um, change the officers, it's harder to change a culture, I imagine. Yeah, it is. It is. And it's never left us. And it seems, unfortunately, to be rising. Mm-hmm. You know, the more authoritarian our government is becoming, the more we're going to be seeing more and more of this. And you see, it's easy also to torture people and suppress people terrorize people basically in poor communities because they don't have a voice, they don't have access to uh, institutions of accountability very easily, they're not listened to, they don't have the resources to get to hospitals or, um, you know, the iPad or places like that. It's it's easy, so therefore you, you can. And in Glebelands, is, is it alleged that they're acting on behalf of politicians, councillors, or are they just trying to get information through torture? I think it's both. From my records, it's both. I just wanted to correct you, though. It's not 14 cases that were reported to us. Okay. Um, most of the of the people who were tortured are not willing to come forward. Um, they're scared. They're scared that the police will take reprisals against them if they make formal complaints. And also, they have no faith in the police because they've been tortured themselves. Um, mm-hmm. So they don't... You know, once an organ of the state commits an act of violence against a member of the public. That destroys trust not only amongst um, the actual, you know, the people who've been literally tortured, but also the entire community. It destroys the trust of the whole community. So, yes, I do believe that some of the incidents of torture were to extort information, but that any information that that is drawn out of anybody under torture is irrelevant. It cannot be used in court. 
It's statements that have been attained under duress. It is useless information. So the police are basically shooting themselves in the foot by what they're doing. Mm. But also, the fact that the majority of people that have been tortured belong to a group who have been the same people who've been assassinated, it, that's that says a lot as well. So that is where the political connection comes in. And I think in your article, there's there's a list of of the different examples of um, different people that have been tortured. Where what's happened to them? Some have been assassinated following this, yes. haven't they? Some have uh, had to flee yeah. to another province, and and so on. You know, we've had we've had very worrying sort of reports um, where some of the residents have said police they have actually witnessed police working from lists of names. Now, there's two, there were two hit lists at Cleveland that have been circulating since early 2014. Now, those lists, we believe, were based on a list of names provided to the Etiquini municipality and um, senior staff members at a meeting, at a protest in mid-2014, as residents who were not wanted in Cleveland. Now, those people whose names we believe were on the list also appear to be the ones that have been assassinated and also ones mostly who've been tortured. Mm -hmm. So how did you come across all these different allegations? I know you work quite deeply with the with the community there. Um, did, did you go searching for them or is this just something that's sort of talked about? No, I was, I, since about 2008, nine, I have been working very closely with um, the Hostel Dwellers Association and they originally asked me to go to Cleveland in March 2014 after um, a guy was killed in custody um, by police. So I went there then and uh, they asked me to assist the family and then from there the community started to report more and more incidents to me, not only of torture but of other other unlawful behaviours, the police, suspicions of collusion with, with killers, um, the use of official firearms, ammunition, all of that kind of thing in the violence. So I sort of like became more and more sort of drawn into it um, at, that, at that stage. Um, so that's where it came from. Now, you're, we actually haven't touched yet on what some of these accounts of torture include, but your article features a lot of very disturbing um, and very difficult to read accounts and it's just shocking and one of the one of the things that seems to come up a lot is this idea of tubing um, can you explain to us just briefly some of some of what this sort of these allegations of torture include because I think and, unless you sort of understand or hear about what's actually happening the word torture can just sort of sound arbitrary yeah, um, tubing particularly is one of the worst things that can be done to a person. Um, it's basically where they put a plastic bag over your mouth and nose and stop you from breathing, and they will hold it there until um, you pass out or sometimes people die. Um, but the, the victim believes that they are going to die. So that is repeated as often as necessary to either get them to agree to um, having committed a crime or providing information. But people will say absolutely anything under those circumstances. The, the, the terror is, is so great. Um, it has long, long-lasting psychological effects. Um, it destroys people's dignity completely. It destroys people's trust in other people. It's far worse than a physical beating. You know, at least with a beating, you, you you have an opportunity to fight back. Um, but this, the police will hold down a guy, say, five cops at a time. Um, they will force him, usually face down on the floor. Um, one goes from behind, he pulls a bag across his face. You know, these have all been documented during apartheid, during the TRC. And the same techniques are used. Um, it's also called waterboarding. Um, that was used extensively in Guantanamo Bay um, by the Americans in their war against terror. And they don't often seem to use water here to drown people, um, you know, semi-drown people, but it's usually just using a plastic bag or 
And unfortunately, they seem to be using evidence bags quite a bit, which is very ironic, but anyway. And it seems that over the years, killings and and, and now we've got these um, allegations of torture um, has gone on at the hostel and, and around the area almost without without anything at least tangible being done or without without any anyone able to stop this what needs to happen firstly to change to to end this sort of torture and then secondly to try and reduce the violence in the area well basically um until the political situation changes um i don't see much happening in the way of accountability um the police I mean you don't you don't hear of police being arrested and convicted for much. You can see by the IPAD re- results in their in their annual report. A lot of the institutions for accountability have been undermined or politically infiltrated or interfered with. They also lack the resources, they lack the training needed. Um and so, you know, accountability is the main thing with this. Until you start, until government starts acting um, conclusively to to stamp this this whole practice out, it, we won't see any change. Um, but it's it's basically political accountability um, and also access, you know, so that people are empowered to to be able to exercise their rights to fight back. Um, as I've said before, you know, the the main people who are tortured are poor communities, even pro bono lawyers, and that are very difficult to come by. Mm. Um, at the moment, you make a report to Arthur. I mean, we are sitting with a case from from March 2014, which is still not concluded. And you know, the the, the problems stretch right the way through to the to the NPA. All of these institutions, particularly in KZN, because KZN is sort of like the the strongest sort of Prozuma faction of the ANC, which is, you know, busy protecting its resources. Um, so there, there is no will. There is no will for accountability. There is no will to to stamp out these these practices. Mm. And until that changes, it's going to continue. Vanessa, so the people need support. Mm-hmm. Also, the general public needs to be made aware of how bad things are, mm-hmm. because they need to be able to demand accountability on behalf of people who can't. Mm-hmm. And I think you've been doing a great job in that, and hopefully we'll be able to touch in on these issues in the future. Vanessa, thank you very much for talking to us. Thanks very much. That's Thanks Vanessa. very much for bringing this out. It's much appreciated by the community themselves. Well, we'll definitely keep on following it up. Um, that's Vanessa Berger, an independent community activist for human rights and social justice. You're listening to The Daily Maverick Show. We're going to go into a quick break before coming back with some special guests. This is CliffCentral.com. Stay informed and up to date. It's the Daily Maverick Show, Tuesdays, 1 to 2 p.m. on cliffcentral.com. You're back with the Daily Maverick Show on Cliff Central. Now, it's only, I think it's under a month now until the local government elections and... Leading up to the elections, obviously one of the key issues is the youth's involvement in politics and youth issues, which I think my guest today will probably tell us that they're everybody's issues. Um, I'm joined by Pumlani Pokoli, who's a hashtag 2x creative content editor, and Lee Malefi, who's back in the studio. We've had him in here before. He's a Liberty Africa creative strategist. Now, these guys have been working on a campaign called hashtag 2x. You might have seen the billboards or on, on your social media posts or maybe even been to one of their debates. Hashtag 2X aims to galvanize youth participation in the greater democratic narrative. Um, it's just, it's pretty cool, I think. I've seen, I was on your Facebook page today looking at all these videos you, you guys have got, Gee, speaking to young people across the country and sort of all their, their different issues that concern them. You've been holding different events and activations both online and, and in person across the country. So firstly, as we head into elections, can you each tell us some of the sort of key themes they're coming up when you're talking to all these young guys around the country. What 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 are people saying? Um, okay, cool. So predominantly, what we're looking at um, with with young people across the board 
is how they how left out they feel. Uh, so we, we speak to them and a lot of them are really engaged, but they feel like counselors and sort of administrators, everyone who's making decisions on their behalf aren't really engaging them about what they need. And so that participation and representation goes, goes out the window. And so there becomes a huge frustration. But at the same time, what we rarely see, rarely, um, is youth political apathy, which we find find quite interesting. And that's the whole hashtag 2X campaign is looking at how alternative forms since last year's emergence of the student protests have actually been so effective in getting uh, people in positions of power to actually listen and, 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 and sort of act on, on, on the students and in young people's commands because students don't represent the entire youth. Mm-hmm. So left out but not apathetic. That's interesting. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I think, you know, it, it's, 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 I think the reason why we started, we had activations where we've gone around the country and, and thank you for mentioning that is because we knew that there's a number of issues that different young people in different parts of the country, different young people of different identities will always want to make noise about. Um, and so, you know, I, I think we, we can look at sort of the insights that have come in, the things that people have said and maybe try and rank a certain range of issues that, you know, rise to the surface. But I don't think that'll be an accurate representation of sort of the range of issues that young people have. I think, but what, what I think, is the core thing is that people want to generate pressure. They want to find mm. any opportunity to generate political pressure on their representatives, and that's local representatives. That's 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 you know representatives sort of in, in the national mainstream. Young people are just out here demanding space. They're demanding a voice. They're demanding platforms, and they want to make sure that they're heard in order to generate the kind of political pressure that puts these guys under pressure to act. And I, and I think that's sort of something that we saw with even the student movements as well. Mm. You know, it was it was it, whether it was it was it was assembling and and gathering and and having a very loud clear voice on social media and or getting together physically out in the streets it was always at the heart of it it's about generating political pressure because people are tired of simply having a conversation that they don't feel like is getting anywhere and i think that's what you know what 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 is talking about is as far as you know the apathy goes and people feeling misrepresented and unheard nobody wants to stand there and keep talking and not be heard anymore people are going listen you're gonna hear me and i think that's something that's that that's really interesting that we'll see more of is that something we mentioned the student protest last year? But are you finding that young people feel that they can either either there are spaces for them now to force themselves to be heard and for their representation to be taken seriously, or either that or that they are just carving spaces for themselves, and whether or not um, there are the spaces exist or not to sort of apply pressure on on. Uh, on, on sort of the authorities or whoever's out there, people they want to influence, yeah. are they just standing up and taking it for themselves? Or are they still sort of like, ah, man, you know, I'm, I'm not apathetic, but ah, what can I do? Hell no, man. I think they're taking it for themselves. You know, and, and I don't even think it's about the spaces. I think often it's even the tone that they want to take. It's it's how they want to talk about their issues. I mean, if we look, you know, I remember the last time I was on the show, we were talking about uh, roads in Chapter 212. We actually got uh, Lee on here the last time for a show to talk about these issues. Right. Got a little bit distracted. <laughs> but So now you're back. Go for it. Yeah. You know, and, and, and often people are quite critical. Of, you know, we're quite critical of me. I'm sure you'll recall of, 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 of sort of the protesters literally having a naked protest, for example. Um, that is not something that is conventional as far as how people, um, galvanize others and, 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 and mobilize around an issue. But young people want to do things their way. They want to, they want to disrupt. They want to shock. They want to make sure that they are a part of the conversation. Um, so I think it's, it's about more than space even, you know, I mean, often when young people or, 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 so for example, if we had young people going to parliament, um, you'd, ex- you know, they are then expected to hold themselves according to parliamentary protocol, for example, which often they feel may be, may, may disrupt their message. But what they, they're not only carving spaces outside of parliament, carving spaces in their neighborhoods, carving spaces, um, at, at the dinner table, where they're having dinner with their friends, they're doing it in a tone, in a language that's entirely theirs. And I think that's really exciting. And I think that's something we re- we really want to sort of come to the first surface with hashtag 2x. Yeah, um, I think the, the the really interesting thing about that is the um, the effectiveness of mobilization and organization that has come from the online 
uh, media sort of space mm. where they can actually then reach out on a really sort of wide network across the country and actually then unify themselves in pursuing uh, a certain goal. At the same time, what we tend to ignore, and this is what has come out of the activations that, that we've seen around the country, is that the online space is, is, is generally quite privileged in itself. Uh, mm. Data is something that's, that's quite uh, a serious sort of hindrance to a lot of people's ability to to access whatever they need and so what you find in in the rurals is once we carve out so the we've had these activations and we've carved out spaces where we can get councillors in where we can get administrators in where we can get mayors in to actually speak to the community just in limpopo about two weeks ago we had the mec uh one of the mecs out there from limpopo and people were going in Uh, people were going ham talking about how um, when they apply for stuff, they need to have certain credentials. They've got to be a youth league member first, then they've got to be a woman, uh, women's league member <laughs> second, and then they must be a bedroom partner third. These are the kinds of, uh, these are the languages that they're using yeah. straight mm-hmm. directly to the MEC to, to actually deal with, with the issues and the hindrances and the obstacles that they face in trying to get their own, um, aspirations off the ground. So what, I think is really quite interesting is the lens in which we look at what youth participation is. Uh, we've got to peel back the layers on that. We've Absolutely. got, because what we've done is that we've, we've immediately equated the young people, youth with students and the majority of youth fall out of the student bracket. Mm. Um, uh, Sizwen Masana wrote an article earlier on this year where he actually said that between the ages of 20 and 24, p- participation in tertiary institutions has only risen to 19.5% in 2013. Mm-hmm. So now we're looking at a huge majority of people who are really disenfranchised and have no access to the sorts of platforms that, that social media and the, uh, the digital space allows. Lee? Agreed, man. And, you know, and another thing with hatchets that I really want to do well is learning about how to even do this. Learning do about mean? how to have the political conversation with young people. That's really something that we've never, you know, quite done. You know, often we, you know, we make broad sweeping assumptions and, and, and to, about young people and, and how they politically engage and what political engagement mm-hmm. even is. And I think there's a massive opportunity here with hashtag to X to take some learning, to take some insights into the 2019 elections, into elections when we're no longer so young. <laughs> and you know, you know what I mean? It's a, so, and, and, and a language is, for example, a barrier. To access is a barrier to engagement, um, and that's something we've had to learn. We've done a, we, you know, we've done a debate in Kwatugus and in KZN that was almost entirely carried out in Zulu, and that is a completely different experience from carrying out a political debate in English uh, in a different part of the country. You know, and and that 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 is. Key, that is a key insight as far as who we include in the conversation, who feels like they can be included in the conversation, and mm-hmm. who's intimidated and not intimidated to even want to take part. So I think there's lots of really, you know, those really key insights that, that I think come, will come out of this campaign um, that will teach us a lot about how to even have the political conversation with the young person. Mm-hmm. It seems like then that's such, such big barriers to have to jump across. Um, so, and it's often a lot of the issues we're talking about with our country, you know, sort of yeah. making things available to, to people in rural areas, not just urban areas, mm-hmm. uh, speaking to people and having conversations, discussions in home languages and not just English or, or, sure. or whatever. Um, taking, taking unemployed youth or, or perhaps guys, you know, who are just sort of trying to make a plan, but at the moment not studying or, or doing much seriously. Like it just seems, it sort of seems obvious in one way. On the other hand, yeah. it seems like this mountain we have to climb. Yeah, um, yeah. And we we're actually having this this discussion uh, earlier on about how when people do protest, the first thing that we we look at is is the economic implications <laughs> of it, right? So After now- today's protest, we found that the protest will impact business by this well, amount. Yeah, yeah. But the, the first thing is the traffic report. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah, and, it, and I think what's really interesting about about these kids right now is that they're saying, "Yo, you talk all this money, you talk all," this, and I'm I'm speaking specifically about the students right now. Mm. Um, they 
they're able to quantify all of these ideas around money and around economy, right? But are immediately able to go, okay, cool, you can do all of that. But then in comparison, what do our lives matter? Um, have you been able, has this money, all these, all this infrastructure actually been of yeah. this worth to our lives? How has it impacted us? For sure. I mean, you know, again, often the, you know, the headline is, we, the country has lost one billion rand because of a protest that was undertaken. I mean, you know, and even to go even further than just students because of a protest mm. that has happened in a certain part of the country. But, you know, we need to ask ourselves questions like, well, how do we expect a person who is on the streets today protesting to even begin to think about uh, protecting an, econ- an economy that's never, that he's never been a beneficiary of? Never tasted he, he's never tasted. We're out here talking about billions of rands, and these are people who are, these are people who are still fighting for a minimum wage, hmm. right? And so another interesting dynamic that 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 this campaign has has brought into sort of is is in 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 in, in, in into our frame of thinking is even the idea of how we think of what is respectable political engagement and what isn't respectable democratic or political engagement. And I think often often we make those and you're absolutely right, often we make you know, we, we and we may not say it, but we will respect democratic and political engagement more from certain groups than we will from others. And mm-hmm. I think we need to have a very honest conversation about what that looks and feels like and how that may stunt the ability of some members of our society to be more impactful democratically. So can we really, should we be policing how people engage democratically? And importantly, I say that because hashtag to X is not simply uh, an IECS campaign that's just coming out and saying people should go out and vote. No. Hashtag TS is coming out and saying democratic engagement is a full-on continuing process. It's an everyday experience that needs to happen even outside of election years. And we want to take it away from that narrative that suggests that we should be politically engaged mm. and vote and then go away. It's something that you need to be continually involved in. And you guys are trying to do that in some interesting sort of ways. So up here now, I've got the VIP, uh, VIPlive.co.za website in front of me. And the first thing I see is a big map going from Cape Town, you know, up to up to the, the top of Zimbabwe. Yeah. And it's got all these little dots on here. And I know you guys are sort of using technology in this program too, aggregating content from Twitter, WhatsApp, blogs, yeah. USSD. Right. Tell me about that. What's happening there? Well, again, what we wanted to do, we knew that we were dealing with different audiences and we knew that we needed the campaign, the different elements to be able to reach different audiences so everybody could be part of the conversation. And so, for example, using technology and trying to reach somebody in the rural areas is always going to be difficult. A, language, B, data, right? And so the portal, which is the, the map that you're looking at, was one of the campaign's elements that we wanted to activate. Basically, what that can do, what that does, is that it gives anybody the opportunity to go on social media and to start a conversation about an issue, for example. So somebody comes out and says... Um, and, and this is just an example. You know, I don't know. If, if somebody in Ilova complains about potholes, for example, uh, and mobilizes 20 other, you know, all my Ilovo peeps, not that those, not that those are your only issues. And WhatsApp, the local DA ward. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> right. Um, it's something that would then reflect on the portal. Um, and what we, we would then do with that information that you share with us is we would amplify it as much as possible. Mm-hmm. We want to, and, and, and what, what so you share on your social networks. And- we share on our social networks. We have partners such as ENCA. We want to make the everyday conversation that you have on social media a big part of the conversation we often have every single day. Um, so for example, with the activations, we go out, we have an activation. We take the insights that we may, f- that, that we find from the person who, whom the media has hardly reached and we want to have we want to take his content his experience of the world and make it a part of the conversation that we want to have nationally uh, and so the portal is a part of that the activations that we're doing is a part of that um, what we're doing on social media on Facebook on Twitter Twitter it's VIP Live uh, ZA, at VIP Live ZA. on Facebook it's VIP Live ZA, which is a young plug uh, <laughs> um, you know it's, it's those are all the elements that we want to use simply to the simple, to the single objective, which is to ensure that people's voices or what people say in any language, in any place that they are, becomes a part of the conversation we all have about politics in South Africa today. Now, I know, you know, there's still just under a month left and to go until the elections. Um, 
but from both of you. Uh, after all your work with the Hashtag 2X campaign and, and, and speaking to so many young people and collecting all this data, do you think do you think a lot of young people will go out and vote when we get those statistics coming back um, as to the youth participation, how many actually registered, how many went to the polls, all those sort of things? Is your sense that people do want to participate in elections and voting? Because if I was, I think, a young person, well, I am a young person, but if I was voting in South Africa and I was a little bit younger, (laughs) I, to be honest, I don't know if I would want to vote. Um, I think that's a really, uh, that's a really interesting question. And and that generally falls into, um, this whole, this whole status of being falls into very crazy educational sort of backgrounds and privileges as well as so, uh, social class and all of that, which is quite interesting because when you look at it, uh, we had this, uh, I, I attended this seminar that reported that South Africa's actually got some of the highest rates mm. of, of, um, participation in terms of elections um comparatively right um and the turnouts are always are generally higher than 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 anywhere else Uh, and the local government election turnouts are even crazier and it's because people understand that they need like they need services Mm. you know um and so for them this is a sort of a structure that has been defined, formalized, and something that they can understand. Also, the historical well, backdrop of this, also, you've got to look at the implications of that. So that you've got a lot of black kids will generally vote more than white kids will, you know? Uh, and that's because they've got the guilt of knowing that their parents weren't able to vote and they've had this thing hammered into them that voting, this right, this is the one basic right that you can kind of exercise. Mm. So when you, when we talk about young people, I think, and, and voting, we've got to really sort of have like a huge framework, um, a huge lens through which, through which we look at them, um, and, and try and understand what the impetus for voting might be and would be. A lot of the, this, this violence that we've been seeing around this elections, these elections have been rather political, um, more than they have been citizen participation. And I think we need to get to the point where we separate the citizens from the political activity going on in the country. Mm, you're right, because if yeah. you look at Tswane, even, yeah. Um, Vuani. Vuani. Both of yeah. them have very, very Absolutely. strong political. Elements. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm not sure what, what, what the question is, but if the question is, <laughs> um, do you so get just to say, is, voting, is, is voting, is <laughs> voting. <laughs> <laughs> you just go on a monologue. <laughs> I think, do, 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 do you get the sense that young people actually want to go out and vote? I know, I know that they want to definitely be active yeah. in, in the issues from what you're saying. Right. But is voting part of that? Do they feel voting is one way that they want to be heard? Thanks. <laughs> yeah, I, I think, I think it would, I think it would be a very different response from different young people in different parts of the country, of course. Um, but it's voting is right now seen as a single act that sits outside of, say, for example, protest action. Um, when we think of voting, we, you know, it does not sit alongside protest action in our imagination of what a great civil engagement looks and feels like. Um, and I think many young people may feel as though it's, it's the protest that generates the kind of political pressure they want. It's, 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 it's getting together in numbers. It's being seen. Um, it's, 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 it's having that naked protest that has a stronger effect than voting. I think there are, I think a lot of, I think if anything, what, what last year pointed out is that a lot of young people are losing faith in institutions, mm. are finding institutions to be quite outdated in their frameworks, to be outdated in their, in, 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 in their mechanics to really reach and engage people. I and suppose so it's easy, I suppose, to say that, well, not easy, but you can say people have been voting for 20, over 20 years and we don't need you know, votes may not change enough. We actually need a huge change of the system. This is exactly it. 
you know, and, 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 and they're expressing that in ways outside of voting because if anything, they see voting as being part of that system, as taking part in something that hasn't, uh, that hasn't worked. And again, I, I say this because as a simple example, students, uh, you know, a student movement may have different sentiments to a political movement run by young people that is, that is a huge movement in Limpopo that is largely ANC orientated. Those sentiments change very quickly depending on who you're talking to. So to say young people, you know, I think is a, is a difficult, mm. uh, thing and and i think we should we should probably stray away from that but i do think that the growing sentiment is a bit as a loss of faith in institutions and how as they stand right now and everything you said about people's going look we've been voting for 20 years whether or not that's enough time or not is not even the, the issue anymore people will be going we've been voting for 20 years what we need right now is we need action we need uh tangible results and we need to see them quickly how do we do that well Voting happens every five years. Right now, what I want to do is I want to get hit the streets and I want to make sure that counselor hears me loudly, clearly, even before I get the chance to punish him with my vote in three years' time. Now, what's next in the, in the few weeks to the elections and, and thereafter for the Hashtag 2X campaign? So <clears throat> today we've actually got a, a VIP debate club going on. In Bromfontein. In Bromfontein Bannister Hotel yes. where we're going to be speaking about traditional versus exactly this, actually, alternative yeah. democracy, essentially the conversation we've been having. Uh, some some people who are, have been active uh, in the spaces of fallism, as well as people, young people who are standing as uh, counselors for their for their local um, for for the local regions that they live in. Moving forward, we're going to be having an activation in PE, uh, Cape Town, and in Johannesburg, mm-hmm. and and more debates. So. And we're just going to be continuing this this engagement past the elections because we need to sustain this this level of of conversation and not just have it every five years. I really yeah. encourage all these guys to check you guys out on on your social media pages, your websites. Before I let you both go, Lee, um, yeah. we have a mutual friend called Edward Ndopo. We do. Um, spy, he's got spinal uh, muscular atrophy. Yeah. He Spoiler. works at Amnesty International. He's a fantastic guy. And you just want to mention his. He's got a campaign running. He does. He does. He does an absolutely fantastic campaign. Um, I mean, you know, as, as, as you know, he's, he's a disability activist as well. Um, the, Eddie's been accepted into Oxford University to study public, public policy at the Blavatnikov School of Governance. And interesting thing here is the scholarship doesn't cover his disability related cost. He's actually disabled from the neck down and the scholarship has never taken on somebody like him before. Hmm. So the, some, 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 some of the other costs like an electronic wheelchair and his 24 hour cov- uh, caregivers costs haven't been factored for. And so and he's so running fundraising, a fundraising, now, right? Campaign. Where can, where can we find out about that? Go to Facebook, Oxford Educated, uh, O-X-F-O-R-D-E-D-D-I-E. C-A-T-E-D, Oxford Educated. Uh, check it out on Facebook. You'll have all the updates on there and you can get the real story. Um, I, I would encourage listeners campaign. to just check it out, even just to read about Eddie's story. It is really amazing. Um, uh, Pumlani Pagole, Lee Malefi from the Hashtag 2X campaign. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much, Greg. Thank, Thank you, you everybody, for, for listening. Um, you can tweet us on at DMShowZA. I'll uh, share the podcast and subscribe. We'll see you next week. Stay informed and up to date. It's the Daily Maverick Show, Tuesdays, 1 to 2 p.m. on cliffcentral.com.